Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I think it was country singer Jerry Reed who said, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. And that's kind of us this morning. If you've looked at the passage we're going to be looking at, we're going to be covering a, a lot of ground. The text we're going to be looking at that uh, begins in uh, Matthew 5 and verse 21, uh, you'll see there, or you may have seen before, that there are six commands that Jesus gives to us, each of which is a, offering a, a pearl of wisdom guiding us in the way that we are to live our lives, and it is, each of them is worthy of consideration uh, as uh, individual entities. In fact, that's probably the way that most people uh, have studied that and, and look at this. And yet this morning, rather than looking at the individual pearls, we're going to be looking at the string of pearls, the entire strand, and for several reasons. One is because while there is beauty in every individual pearl, there's a different kind of, of magnificence of the strand of pearls that can be missed if we just focus only or isolate only on the individuals. And so we're going to look at the larger picture of that so that we look at the entire strand. And that's kind of more of a kind of an imagery way of saying is that there are some big picture ideas here that are important, they're foundational for us, that we may overlook if we only look at this as the specific, uh, the specific uh, commands that are given to us. And another reason that I figured is that the first people who heard this, when Jesus was preaching it, he preached it all together, they heard it all together. And so if there's anybody out there who thinks that we should only study this verse, verse by verse, I've now one-upped you, because no matter who you've heard preach all of these, Jesus did it this way. Jesus did it my way. No, so anyway... Um, so there's a way of deflecting criticism. Anyway, um, so this morning we're going to begin our reading in, uh, well, we'll begin our reading in verse 20 because that context needs to be understood uh, because everything that comes from verse 21 through 48 is a, a reflection. It is an illustration. It's an elaboration of what Jesus says when he says that uh, our righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come and give praise and thanks to you for the word that you have given, because as you have promised, this word gives life. As we have experienced it, we know it to be true. For others who are here, who are longing for something, it may sound ridiculous, but I do pray that by your spirit, you might also help them to understand where life comes. Father, we pray that you would open our minds as well as our hearts, that this word would not only fill us and puff us up, but that it would seep inside and bring change in our heart and therefore our very lives. We pray with great confidence for you who began a work, will continue it, and you have promised that you would use your word, that it never comes back empty. So enlighten us and encourage us and focus us in this time that we would give our attention to your word even as a way that we are able to honor you, that we may worship you by lending our minds and hearts to this study. We pray all for your glory and for the joy that is ours when we are following you, when we are found in you. We pray this in Jesus. Amen. Matthew 5, verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable 
to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs, begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of, the, of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Now, as we look at this passage, we see, I think, simply that this passage is about the standard of righteousness in the kingdom of heaven. There seemed to have been some confusion, and Jesus lays it out and uses these six commands as an illustration of how seriously God takes holiness and what genuine righteousness is. But as we look at this, we also need to realize that this passage, while it is certainly about the standard of righteousness, this passage is also about personal growth and personal change. Because the standard of righteousness Jesus lays out, he's quite well aware that it is a level that the people hearing 
No, they have not reached. And yet, while that would be undoing, which is part of his intent, it is also in, laid out there as a standard and as an encouragement of something for which we are to aspire. Now, Timothy Lane, who works with uh, CCEF, Organization Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, he has noted that there's nothing more obvious than the need for change and nothing less obvious than what needs to change and how change is to take place. I think as Jesus, understanding that is a universal condition that all of us experience. We all want to be better. We all want to be different. Even if we are highly successful in almost any measure, we don't want to remain the same. We want to continually get better. Jesus here in these words, as we take them as a whole, not only shows us to which we are called to aspire, but also, I believe, lays foundational principles by how we are able to change. Now, the first thing that we need to understand in terms of an overview of this is what Jesus is telling us in this passage is that the standard of righteousness in the kingdom of heaven or growth in righteousness in the kingdom of heaven is an inside-out process. It's an inside-out process. It works from the inside and then shows itself on the outside. As we look at this from an overview, there's a couple of principles that we need to understand that will help us understand how that process works and also reinforce the fact that what Jesus is showing us here is the way of the kingdom is that it's an inside-out process. The first thing that we need to understand is that what Jesus is doing with these commands, with this instruction in his sermon, is that he's raising the standard of righteousness. Essentially what Jesus is doing is kind of like playing poker. He's saying to those who are Pharisees, who are those who have a standard of righteousness, and saying, I'll see your 613 commands, and I'll raise you six. And he says that, you've heard it said, and he's appealing not specifically to the law, but the way the tradition of the law had become known. And so everything that Jesus said were commonly understood principles lived out by the Pharisees and others who aspired to be righteous in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Jesus makes a contrast, said, you say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. In essence, what Jesus is doing is he's giving, he's upping the ante, and then he's giving the antithesis, ante meaning another, and then thesis, the antithesis. Jesus is giving another thesis. You've heard it said, but here is what I say to you. And in so doing, he's saying that the standard of righteousness that you understand is not the standard of righteousness in the kingdom of heaven. Now, one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he is reflecting the paradox of the kingdom of heaven. Because there is an essence in which it is very true. Jesus, to becoming a Christian, being a Christian, living as a Christian, is much easier than living under the law. That's why Jesus can rightly say, come to me, those who uh, you are burdened and you're heavy laden, because my yoke, in other words, the, the thing that holds us together, the thing that enables us to live, to live life together, it's light, it's easy. That's the promise of Jesus. And so we understand that. We want to experience that. And there's a very real promise. But then we have a passage like this where Jesus says, okay, but if you want to follow me, unless your righteousness, the way you live your life is greater than the Pharisees, who were meticulous in their 613 laws and then made rules to go above those so they didn't even get close to what they consider violating those laws. And now we're supposed to be greater than that? I mean, that seems 
very difficult, impossible, which is part of what Jesus is trying to present here. See, the paradox of the kingdom of heaven is this. We only experience the ease of being in Christ when we have experienced the impossibility of doing what God commands. But once we experience the impossibility and turn to Christ, we find the ability to do that which is impossible. That's the promise that is overarching what Jesus is saying when we don't divorce these commands from what Jesus had said before. Not only unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and that he has not come to do away with the law at all, but when we cling to the reality that he has come to fulfill the law, the power of God is at work in us and then through us. So Jesus here raises the level of righteousness or the standard of righteousness that it is not some doable thing. As long as I avoid doing these things, as long as I do these things, then I'm fine. Jesus raises that to a point where we realize who can do this. But after having that perspective, we also then see that Jesus reminds us that, the, that real righteousness begins in the heart. Now, in our world, in our culture, in our churches, there's no lack of models or standards of righteousness. They abound. Sometimes they are in conflict. Our culture is, right now is living where a shift of what is righteous. Things that were considered wrong two, three, four years ago, at least in the last election cycle, we see now 180 differences. If you were against something before because of righteousness by our world standards, now you are for it because that's what righteous people do in our culture. Now my intent is not to say, to, to, to deal on those issues, but just to show just how dizzying and how difficult it is to understand what the standard of righteousness is. No wonder people are confused of what righteousness is. And there is a sense in which we need to give due to each sphere. They define what they consider to be righteous. Jesus is speaking about what does it mean to be righteous in God's eyes in the kingdom of God, which ultimately is all. And for those who would follow him, it is to be our standard. But like us, the people in that day, the people that Jesus was speaking to, they were somewhat confused because there were multiple models for the standard of righteousness. Perhaps particularly they were confused by the standard of righteousness that was exhibited by the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus has already alluded to. They had a very external, a very formal, a very moralistic, legalistic, and a very spiritually shallow definition of righteousness. They postured themselves and partly behaved in a way that the average person would say, I, I, I don't think I could ever do that. And while they may not say it, many of the people who saw these religious leaders were probably thinking to themselves, I don't think I would ever want to do that. That may be what is right. That may be what is righteous. That may be what it takes to be godly. But I find it obnoxious, not to mention it's confusing to me because they say one thing and yet they seem to do another. They declare that they are living for God who loves us, and yet they don't seem to give a hoot about us. Their whole life seems to be bent on drawing attention to themselves so that other people will tell them how great they are. 
if that's what it takes to be righteous, not only can I not do it, I don't even think I want to do it. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, if you've been in certain circles, whatever they may be, Christian or non-Christian, but the standard of righteousness is such a way that you look at it and think, I don't think I can, and the fact is, I don't think I would even want to. I don't want to be like that. The reality is we need to understand that just as the fake jewelry can pass for the real thing, so can righteousness, self-righteousness and phony righteousness pass for the real thing very easily. This summer, I was, as I was reading a newspaper, I ran across something that I thought was interesting, and I kind of made note and clipped it out. In Amherst, New York, that's the dateline from AP, an Amherst jeweler uh, who admitted to selling counterfeit jewelry, including fake diamonds, uh, fake pearls, and other gems, for the last 16 years was sentenced to between 23 and 69 years behind bars. Paul Blar pleaded guilty to first degree scheme of, uh, of, of defrauding. Now, I need to be clear. It says Paul Blar, no T. It's not Paul Blart, the mall cop. You're free to, anyway. Now, he and Paul Blart were in the mall together. I don't know. That wasn't in the article. But Paul Blar was the one who finally uh, um, pleaded guilty to first degree schemes um, for defraud and 10 counts of a third degree uh, grand larceny. He then pleaded guilty to another 15 felony counts, bringing the total number of victims that he ripped off to 217 between January 1st, 1998 and March 21st, 2014, when he was caught and his companies were shuttered. Now, here's the part that became particularly intriguing to me, the fact that there are crooks out there. That's not surprising. There's crooks everywhere. But it was the responses of some of the victims that I, I found particularly interesting, especially as I was preparing and knowing that we'd be having this discussion. One victim named Katie Eberlin said that Barr ripped, uh, ripped her off for $25,000 and stole a diamond that was a family heirloom. And so apparently what had happened is she had taken her, I don't know if it was an engagement ring or an heirloom from the family uh, with a ring, a diamond on it that was worth $25,000. It's been a long time since I bought Carolyn's engagement ring, so I'm guessing that's not still in the same ballpark. Um, I'm guessing a $25,000 diamond is a pretty nice diamond. And so what really caught my attention about that is for somebody, I know it was a family heirloom, but at least the way that the article read, at least my mental picture of this person who had been ripped off is somebody who is capable enough and therefore probably intelligent enough to function in, I guess, higher end of our society and of culture in order to have resources of something that is this valuable. And yet what had happened, she took her ring in, and he, the jeweler apparently took the $25,000 diamond off and then put a phony diamond in, she didn't figure it out for a while until they started checking uh, because other people had recognized it was just something not right. So there was a very intelligent, very capable individual who was walking around with something that was worthless, thinking that it was something that was great because the jeweler had taken it from them. Another victim um, that uh, was quite upset, understandably so, uh, named Teresa Polanski, she said her husband, who was dying of cancer, was scammed into buying fake gems for her and her children. And her response is, he has no place in society, he can never be trusted, and she, he should receive the maximum punishment for his offenses. I can feel the love that was coming from that. Apparently, she is against this, uh, that idea of being taken. And understandably, it was a gesture as her husband was passing away, something he wanted to leave to the family. But we all feel angry when we are taken in. We all feel ripped off, and there should be something just. And apparently, this guy will be spending, well, the rest of his life, plus some, 
uh, behind bars because, you know, I think the article had indicated the guy's 50 years old. He's going to be spending a minimum of 23 years in jail and possibly 69. So he's probably not getting out until he's 100 and, what's the math, 119 years old. So simply because he is passing off something that isn't real as if it is something that is valuable. Now, if our world takes that standard so clearly, in other words, if you're trying to pass something off as if it's real when it's not, how much more does God take seriously that which is something of value when someone, or so, something that is not valuable being passed off as something that is of value? And the reality is we have all forms of phony spirituality or phony righteousness. There's no limit to that. It may be in the form of self-righteousness. It may be in the form of performance righteousness. But Jesus has already said, here's what righteousness actually is. And it's not those things. And we need to be very careful, since Jesus is making this contrast, that we are not a people who cannot tell real righteousness from false righteousness, false righteousness from real righteousness. So it might be a good idea if we actually defined what real righteousness is, at least according to the kingdom, because otherwise we just know that we're not supposed to do something. We don't know what it actually is. The best definition that I've heard, and as I've said a few times, some of you have heard me use this, um, is one, I don't remember who I heard it from, so by my way of thinking, it's mine now. So all the wisdom and brilliance, is, it belongs to me. If you want to quote it, go ahead, but I, I deserve, I want to cut from all the... But it's simply this, righteousness is right faith propelling right action. Righteousness, at least according to the standard of the kingdom, is right faith propelling right action. Both components of faith and action must be present for genuine righteousness. But right action, good action, good deeds, even if they're done by people of faith, does not qualify as biblical righteousness. How do we know this? Well, for one, the scripture tells us without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, that means certain good deeds can be done, and it doesn't mean that they are any less good, that the people who are beneficiaries are any less blessed by them, but it doesn't qualify as righteousness unless it is propelled by faith. It's not even sufficient for the good deeds to be done by people of faith to do good works. The righteousness of the standard is that we, with right faith, understanding who God is, who we are, what God has done for us, and with that full understanding of the faith that has been trusted to us, that it just moves us out to live our lives in a way that is right, that is holy, and that is beneficial for the people who are around us. Faith propelling us to action. That is the definition of righteousness. Now, I do also need to clarify, because somebody asked me in the first service what I was talking about, and it was a very good point. I'm going to get theological for just a second because one of the things that confuses us at times is when we talk about righteousness, there's two different kinds of righteousness that we see revealed in the New Testament. One is known as passive righteousness, which means by faith that the righteousness of Christ is counted as ours. In other words, when we are trusting Jesus, all of his righteousness, Scripture says, is clothing us. It belongs to us. It might as well be our own. But that scripture, and that's the basis by which we relate to God, that's the comfort, that's what we celebrate when we come to worship. But the promise of the scripture is also this, those who are blessed by the 
paths of righteousness, who understand that our identity is in our connection with Christ. God is at work and also will enable us to die to our sin and grow in righteousness. And that righteousness is actual righteousness, is the theological term. In other words, we actually begin to see change in our life. And while we are aware still of our brokenness and our need, we see different ways in which we have grown the fruit of God's Spirit, the evidence of belonging to Christ. And so what Jesus is getting at here, and so what we're talking about here, is the act of righteousness that belongs to those who are in Christ, how we live our lives. But even with that understanding, sometimes people still get very confused. Just as they were confused in that day, looking at the Pharisees and thinking that righteousness comes by bathing yourself in external things, so there are well-intentioned traditions within the Christian house that seem to think the same thing is at work today. That if we simply bathe ourselves externally in things, that somehow that will seep through and then we will become righteous because that we have done that. When I was a relatively new Christian, I thought, okay, maybe the best way to grow is nothing but Christian music in my car and at home. I was managing a Christian radio station, so it was at work, whether I wanted it to be or not. Um, and then the T-shirts and the other external things. And I'm not suggesting that there isn't anything inherently wrong with any of those things. But at one point, it, it began to dawn on me. This doesn't really promise to make change. I know a lot of people that are involved kind of doing the same thing, and there doesn't seem to be any, any change taking place. And as I began studying the Word and blessed by people teaching, I realized it's also not what Jesus promises. It's not that it's wrong to have the external things around us, but it doesn't promise to do anything. And then I began thinking about this, is that there is a difference between marriage and marination, at least if you look in your cookbooks. I checked this out with Steve Geisler in the first service, so I know my illustration is right. But when you marry something, it basically you're taking two kinds of sauces, you're blending them together, stirring them, and you create something that is entirely new. There is nothing of the pre what used to be. It is only now one. When you marinate, you take two things that are entirely different and you soak one in the other. So you take a piece of chicken and you soak it in the new sauce. But it doesn't matter how long you leave it soaking in that sauce, the chicken will never become sauce. The sauce will never become a chicken. The change of the nature doesn't take place from the outside in. And then as I've grown, I began to think about it in this way, becoming more spiritual. And thinking back to my days at, as a child in my cousin's farm, if you're out in the woods and you get skunked, you will stink. That's the spiritual thing for total depravity. You know, all of us are, are broken and, uh, you know, I'm saying spiritually we all stink. So how do you get rid of the stink? You bathe yourself in tomato juice. How long do you need to bathe yourself in tomato juice before you no longer stink? I don't know. How long do you need to bathe yourself in tomato juice before you become a tomato? That one I do know. It doesn't happen. 
And the same is true for us spiritually. If we have the idea that I will grow in righteousness simply by the T-shirts and the culture and the, uh, the glitch and all this other stuff, or constantly listening only to Christian music or only Christian teaching, I'm not saying that God will not use that, but that's not the promise of how righteousness works through our lives. That external bathing in things doesn't change our nature, doesn't change us any more than uh, likely than we become a tomato or a piece of chicken, a sauce becoming a piece of chicken. The reality is that Jesus here says to his disciples something that is easy to overlook but very important. There's a dynamic that's taking place if you look at each of these commands. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And there's something that's also very true for us because all of us like to be measured based on our performance. That's just an instinctive reality. And so when somebody says, you've heard it said, and, and lays out a standard, our response, our natural response, is to just ask ourselves, okay, do I clear that hurdle or do I not? And regardless of how you answer that, Jesus is using his word saying, well, you've heard it said this, but I'm saying this. Now that is a guarantee because now we have to ask ourselves, what is the standard by which I live? Do I live by the standard by which I've heard? Do I even meet that standard? Do I've always wondered if there was something more? What is the standard by which I live? And now Jesus is giving a very definitive standard, and we're saying, well, do I meet that standard? It's just a natural response that any person has when they're given some standard because we all want to be thought well, and so when somebody gives us a test like that, we all measure ourselves against that test. It's just our natural bent. But what's taking place when we ask ourselves, do I measure up against whatever the standard is, we are taking a personal inventory of our own heart, our own values, as well as our own behavior. And this is intentional. Jesus is laying this out for us because he is saying to us, as we're told elsewhere, righteousness, real righteousness, begins in the heart. It's taking a personal inventory, recognizing our strengths and yet our deficiencies. And when Jesus levels, levels out a standard by which we are not going to be able to make, now you may make most of them today, but tomorrow's another day. To live our lives perfect, if there was any question, Jesus finishes up this whole thing saying, okay, here's the short thing, um, be perfect. That's what I expect, because that's what our Father's in heaven. Okay, how hard is that standard? Perfection. Lacking nothing, doing nothing wrong. We all find ourselves, no matter what we consider assets, to become undone. And when we are undone, the paradox of the gospel begins at work because now we are driven to the cross where we find not only forgiveness because Christ has paid for us, but we find power and the promise that Christ now, by his spirit, is alive within us and doing a work and making us, driving us, compelling us, enabling us to grow more and more to be like Jesus. It begins in the heart. And Jesus is saying these laws to break us and as well as to give us a standard. But we also need to realize that real righteousness, it's an inside-out process. And so real righteousness begins in the heart, but real righteousness always expresses itself externally. And here, as we look at these commands, we won't look at them in great detail because for this morning you can do that in your small groups or in your own, in your home. And we may come back to them in the summertime. We're breaking up several things, looking big picture, coming back. However you study this, 
when you look at every one of them, something that you will notice is every one of these not only is about the way that we live our lives, but every one of them has some way in the way we live our lives in relationship to other people. I mean, even the one that doesn't look like that it would be, don't take oaths. That just seems like it's a behavior issue, right? But the reason for that is not that there is inherently something wrong with the oaths, but when we feel the need to elaborate on our words. Dalton asks me a question, and I say, yes, I swear. So there's something in me feeling inadequate that he might not trust my yes. So I have to go over. So the whole idea of just letting your yes be yes and your no be no is we live our lives in such a way that we are trustworthy. We give the gift of the people that we live with, that we encounter, that they can trust our word. It's not only for us, that's the benefit of the people who are around us. Every one of these commands is an external expression of how we live our lives and how we live our lives with others. And that is what genuine righteousness calls us to do. We are to recognize that it begins in our heart. Jesus raises the standard to break us. It begins in our heart when it breaks us, driving us to Christ where we find not only the passive righteousness, his righteousness counted as ours, which comes just by trusting him. But as he does what he promises and dwells within our hearts by his Holy Spirit, we then begin to have, we have the power to begin to live in a way, not only we didn't aspire to, but we were not capable of. We begin doing what is impossible based on our nature because we become more and more like Christ. The yet process of inside-out righteousness or the, righteousness, the process of growing in righteousness as an inside-out practice really is calling our attention to gaze upon the life and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ where we find not only our undoing but our doing in a way that we never could dream because we are undone by his holiness but we are loved and empowered in a way that we have never imagined. And the cycle of growth comes as we are undone and are believing and God is at work within us, clinging to the promise that he who began a good work will continue it through for his glory and for our joy because he even indicates here, as our lives are reflective of genuine righteousness which is rooted in Christ and express faith in Christ and expressed in practical ways, it's not us that people look at and say, I want to be like you. But it's their own lives that they look at and what our lives point to and say, I need and want that Jesus too. That's how we, being very normal, do amazing things. Being very ordinary, God does the extraordinary. We are vessels through which people gain if we understand the righteousness that Jesus is calling us to.